We're going to read from the book of Esther, chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Medea, the princes, and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace, for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Bizthar, Harbona, Bigthar, Abakthar, Zithar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Memucan the seven nobles of Persia and Medea, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Thus, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. Later, 
When the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let, let the king appoint commissioners in every province in his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel at Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then the girl that pleases the king be then the girl that pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehokachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, who he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when, his, when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Now, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. But every day he walked to and fro near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a girl's turn came to go to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with, uh, six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem in the care of Shagas, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, and the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. 
He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with rural liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became very angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on the gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. This is God's word. Our loving Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we pray that you'd help us understand it rightly. We need your spirit to help us do that, to open our eyes to see these timeless truths. You want to speak to our hearts and our minds today. So please be at work doing that. So we would see you as uh, the mighty king. So we would see how we respond to you as, to, as those who know and understand your love for us. We ask for your honor's sake. Amen. So Esther, and we're back on page 501. Esther, possibly one of those books you're quite grateful someone tells you what page it's on. Uh, uh, it may not be uh, the most familiar book. But the book of Esther, then, it recalls the uh, history behind the Jewish festival of Purim, um, which is still be celebrated annually every year, uh, just a few weeks before the festival of Passover. So uh, Jews still commemorate the events of this book of Esther, which was an attempt to annihilate them. So the, the, really, the story of the book of Esther is of Haman, the baddie, and um, uh, you know, he's, the, he's the, the, the baddie in the story. And he launches an attempt in chapter 3 to annihilate all of the Jews living in exile in Persia. And uh, the Jewish festival, Jewish festival of Purim, uh, the center point is this story gets read every year. And uh, when Haman's name is mentioned some uh, 18 times in, in the book, everyone boos and sisses. It has a sort of slight pantomime feel to it. But that's okay. Uh, that's okay. Uh, because it is, it's that sort of story. It is a great story. It's a, it's a very well-crafted short story. If you haven't read ahead to the end, uh, please do so but if you're, uh, before next time. Uh, only ten chapters. It's a short story. It's more entertaining than probably the novel you're reading. It's, it's a funny story. It's like a well-crafted Shakespearean tragedy. Because it's not just the story of a rescue, that God rescues his people, but a complete turnaround. So Haman, the baddie, boos. That's what we meant. To, no, let's not go there. That'll be, that'll, that'll be embarrassing for everyone. Um, but uh, he looks like he's about to triumph. So his arch enemy, Mordecai, the Jew, um, he's about to be hanged on a set of gallows. The Jewish people are about to be wiped out. And within the space of a chapter... There's a complete turnaround. It even uses the language, chapter 9. At this point, the tables were turned, is uh, how it gets translated. And all of a sudden, oh, the baddie, Boo Hiss Haman, he ends up getting killed on the gallows that he's made. 
Uh, and uh, by the end of the book, Mordecai, the Jewish hero, and uh, the Jewish people are uh, they're living in peace and prosperity. Hurrah, it all ends well. It's a complete turnaround. And we're meant to read this and smile. There are points at which it's almost sort of carry-on in its humor. I mean, it's just sort of ludicrous. So you get to in chapter 7, Haman, he's a bit nervous. How's the, you know, he's, not, he's not certain that the king still likes him. So he goes to Queen Esther and uh, gets down before her and um, asks, can you support me? Can you, can you help me before the king? But he sort of trips and, and uh, throws himself, therefore, upon Queen Esther. The king marches in. What? You're throwing yourself at my wife? I had my doubts about you, but now I know. And it's sort of, you know, it's sort of a hysterical moment in the book. You know, it's just a whoop. Oh, no, how does that all happen? And oh, no. And Haman, you know, it's funny. We're meant to laugh. Now, and I say, do read ahead to the end. Otherwise, you know, you may have read, you know, these two chapters, we've had them read, quite a long reading, and you're thinking, what's what's this sort of patriarchal nonsense? What's going on? You know, what are these beauty treatments? What are they? Do they sell them at Body Shop? What's going on here? Um, Can I just reassure you, next time we have a chunk read next week, it's okay. When you think that's ridiculous, you can laugh. You're meant to. That's how it's meant to be read. It's that sort of book. Now, briefly, briefly, let's uh, orientate ourselves in biblical history, just so we know where this fits in, because this isn't just a funny short story that someone slipped into the Bible. Whoop, that one's got under the radar. That'll give them a laugh. It's not that. It's history. It's uh, a point in the history of the Jewish people. So very, very briefly, uh, in uh, 597 B.C., you can read these things. Uh, the Babylonians invade Jerusalem. In 587, they destroy Jerusalem. And the bulk of the people are then taken off into exile. A few years later, Cyrus, the Persian, beats up the Babylonians. So the Babylonian Empire crumbles. The Persian Empire begins. In about five, uh, five, well, 559, that happens. In 538 BC, Cyrus issued a decree that the Jews could return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. Sorry, that's my shorthand. That should have come out. Jerusalem, which is interesting because years before in Isaiah 45, he'd said, Isaiah predicted before there was anyone on the scene, before Jerusalem was destroyed, oh, by the way, there'll come a king called Cyrus and he'll conquer the world and he will encourage God's people to go back to Jerusalem. And it happens just as Isaiah predicted. Striking, very striking prophecy uh, of the Bible that um, is archaeologically, historically pr- uh, proven. Uh, Cyrus dies. He's taken over eventually by uh, Darius, who becomes king of Persia. And then in 486, Xerxes becomes the king. And that's the man uh, we're concerned with. And if you've seen the film um, 300, that slightly violent comic strip film of uh, Leonidas, the Greek, resisting Xerxes, that's, it's this king. Uh, do, have you, anyone seen it? Okay. Ooh, you know. It's absurd, by the way. It, um, it's sort of quite fun, but the history of it is pretty dubious. But is that king, Xerxes, because eventually he tried too hard against the Greeks and his whole empire crumbled. But that's the king we're talking about. So the events of Esther, they're about 486, 480 BC. Brilliant. Okay, done. Why? So what? <laughs> Just as we begin the book, three little things that we learn, that we'll see uh, coming up time and time again, in Esther. Now, very brief, we're going to unpack these over the next few weeks, but uh, I've put them down there. We'll learn a bit about how to relate to a dominant culture. Uh, at this time, God's people, they're scattered all, over, scattered all over the place. The Persian Empire is dominating them. How do, you, how do you respond when the culture is so all-pervasive? 
it's so dominating against you. What do you do? How do you respond to a culture which tries to squeeze you into its mold as the Persian culture did? And we'll, we'll think about that quite a bit. The main heroes of the book, Esther and Mordecai, sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong. Tonight, they get it wrong. But there's stuff we can learn there. Second thing we'll look at is how to trust when God seems absent. I mean, everyone notices this, but one of the most striking features of the book of Esther is God's not in it. God's not in it. There is no mention of God. Now, that's not a mistake. It's not as if the author wrote it, uh, sent it off to his editor, and it got published. He thought, oh, no. how embarrassing. What's everyone going to say? I'm a, I'm a believer and I forgot to mention God. No, it's not that. It's very deliberate. There are times in the book where he has to really bend over backwards to not mention God. So in chapter 3, they're fasting and praying to, well, I don't know what they're doing. You know, it doesn't say it. They're just fasting. That's all we're told. Or Mordecai um, rips his clothes and goes around in sackcloth and ashes, which is a sign of repentance to God, but he doesn't say it. It's a very deliberate point. God is uh, written out or hidden in the book of Esther. And I think we'll find that's incredibly reassuring for us because there are many times in our lives where God is not apparently obvious, but he's always at work. And third little thing is how to enjoy God's salvation. As I say, the book of Esther, it's meant to make you laugh. And Mordecai, he's not Paul Merton, but it is satire. The book of Esther is poking fun at the powers that be, constantly saying they look so impressive, but they're not. That's what it's doing constantly throughout. So you're meant to smile. You're meant to think, okay, it's reassuring. Sometimes culture seems so oppressive to push us into its mold, but, you know, (laughs) let's just smile and remember that God is there. Those are the impacts, or some of them, the uh, applications that uh, will come out. Okay, let's move on to tonight then. And uh, two things, two things to say. Uh, The first, that don't be impressed with appearances, don't be distressed with God's hiddenness. The first then, chapters one and two, don't be impressed with appearances. And there's two slightly different things. So chapter one, I'd say, look, don't despair is the message. Don't despair at the might of the culture. Chapter two, don't compromise to fit in with the culture. There's a slight difference, but the same main point, I think. So chapter one, Uh, scene one then, chapter one, here we are in the king's winter palace, just one of his five palaces, his winter palace at Susa. And everything in this chapter is meant to make us realize that King Xerxes ruled everything. He was an all-powerful king, ruling over everything. So we're told at verse 1, he ruled over 127 provinces. Now, you probably can't see it, but if there's a map, that's all his. You can't really see that. But basically, we're going from, uh, from Egypt all the way over to India. That's his. The Persian Empire was the biggest empire the world had ever seen at this point. He was a mighty king, ruling over everything. That's the headline right at the beginning. It's Xerxes. He rules. And then everything in the rest of the chapter is meant to impress us. So he could throw a party. Oh, yes, verse 4. When he chucked a party, 180 days. That's quite an extravagant party. And this, of course, is for everyone who's anyone. Uh, Verse 3, the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles, officials, military leaders, princes, nobles. 180 days, it goes on. So anyone who's anyone is there for um, uh, this six-month event, and he's... 
it's sort of, everyone would have been there, you know, Hello Magazine would be covering it, because the famous and the celebrities there, there, the sort of wannabes just sneaking in, just about on their ticket, they're all there. It's a big party for 180 days. Very impressive. And what do you do at the end of a festival for 180 days? Well, you throw another one. So uh, a slightly shorter one. Then he goes for a seven-day, uh, verse 5. When these days were over, what did the king do? Well, what else do we do? Banquet's over. <laughs> chuck another one. So he chucks another banquet. Uh, just for seven days, this one, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people. So this is like um, a garden party at Buckingham Palace, apart from everyone in the capitals invited. Sousa are a bit smaller than London. Um, but it's that sort of idea. And so you now all the hoi polloi are in, and you can imagine they're, ooh, look at, you know, look at the wealth, look at the extravagance. That's, that's what we're meant to get. Look, this man has you know, ex- just extraordinary costly stones that I've never heard of. Poor free, I, what on earth is that? Wildly expensive. It, all this, this lavish linen hanging from everything, the expensive stones everywhere, the golden cups, each one different from the other. It's not a job lot from Ikea. They're all handcrafted. Every single one is different. It is, you know, and the hoi polai are in, obviously, you know, they're just all they're nicking their royal teaspoons, <laughs> you know, and because, you know, it's an amazing thing. You know, um, which some people do apparently when they go to the palace. Uh, the, um, you know, it's that sort of thing. Everyone, oh, wow, you know. King Xerxes, he rules. He's powerful. He's got money. He's got everything. He rules. You get this slightly odd verse 8. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way. So this is a slightly odd regime that feels the need to command everything. I issue an edict for my banquet. What is it, O king? You can drink how you want. Brilliant. Thank you very much. This is sort of slightly obsessive bureaucracy. This is like the EU gone mad. You know, your bananas can only be a certain angle. Your yolks have to be a certain color. It's this sort of obsessive. He wants to control everything, 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 because he rules. That's the point. He controls everything in his world. He really is an absolute monarch of absolute proportions. Okay, what's the queen doing at this? Well, verse 9, she's doing her own thing, Vashti, until uh, the king summons her, verse 10. On the seventh day, when King, Xerxes, sorry, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, you probably would be after 187 days. You may have had the odd dip, but if you've been, you know, he probably was. He, um, he commands these seven eunuchs to bring him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely uh, to look at. Now, um, uh, I mean, this is, again is a bit odd. He summons the queen wearing her crown. Is that just her crown? Because he wants everyone to see just her, you know, her, her beautiful form. Is that just to emphasize she's beautiful and she's mine? It's that sort of thing. But again, it's just odd. He has to send seven eunuchs. I mean, what sort of obsequious regime is this? Right, can you get the queen? And I'll need seven of you. Well, off you go, you know, like the seven, you know, off they all march. And they go to see the queen Vashti, 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 the king, the king, the king, you know. It, it's just, it's just slightly absurd how it's told. The king wants you to come, and Vashti says, nah. And the eunuchs, well, they don't know what to do. Uh, 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 <laughs> uh, come on, please? No. No. You can tell the royal prig, his royal gluttonness. No. Oh dear. So back they go, the seven eunuchs. And um, they had to say to the king, King, your, your queen's not coming. 
Do you see the point being made here? He rules over 127 provinces. He has the largest empire the world has ever seen. He has more money and wealth and opulence than anyone could ever think of. He controls everything, but he can't tell his wife what to do. (laughs) He is the mighty king who's got problems at home. Oops. We're meant to laugh and say, well, not quite so impressive, is he? After all, that's the point. And now panic. Verses 13 to 15, panic. Uh, They have to have a cabinet meeting. Again, seven people, seven advisors gather around. Uh, The the king can't control his wife. What shall we do? We better have a cabinet meeting and come up with some bright ideas. And there's panic. And they all panic. Oh, no, your wife doesn't obey you. Our wives aren't going to obey us. Their wives aren't going to obey him. What do we do? So eventually they issue a law. Verse 22. Okay, send this law out to all the kingdom. Every man is in charge of his household. Verse 20. All women must respect their husbands. Now look, if you've got to send that out as a rule across your country, you're in, prob- you're in trouble. You're in trouble. You can issue the rule, but anyone who's married knows it doesn't quite work that way. You can't just lay down the law like that. I guess he may rule 127 provinces. But when you see him on his own or with his counsellors, he's a bumbling fool. He's a lecherous, drunken Man. He's a bit like a thinker, I wonder. Um, do you remember, have you seen the third Blackadder, when uh, Blackadder is butler to uh, the crown prince, the son of King George III, George III going mad, and uh, the crown prince is, um, uh, is Hugh Laurie, uh, in days slightly before House. Um, and uh, Hugh Laurie is the bumbling crown prince, do you remember that? He's just clueless, he hasn't got a clue. Blackadder, where's all my money? Why have I, you know, where am I still can underpants, Blackadder? He just, he's a bumbling fool, he's not really in control of anything. And that's Xerxes, when you see him in his household. He looks very impressive, but don't be impressed with appearances. And please don't despair at the might of the culture of your society. Don't despair at that. Because in the background, it's not very impressive. Okay, so chapter one, don't despair then at the might of the culture. Chapter two, don't compromise to fit in with it. So what are we going to do now? Well, uh, the king's uh, servile advisors suggest a beauty pageant. Ah, here's what we'll do. He'll like this one. That'll keep the fool happy. Let's have a Miss Persian Empire. And apart from you don't volunteer for this one. You don't sort of choose, oh, I think I might enter um, Miss Persian Empire. If you're in the empire, you're in. So Esther gets taken. She has no choice in the matter at this stage. Uh, what's the criteria? What should we choose? To, um, how do we choose a, a, a queen, a new queen for the king? Well, verse 2, she's got to be beautiful, got to be young, got to be a virgin. Brilliant, fellas. What was the problem with Vashti? She was stunningly beautiful but non-compliant. What do you want in the new king? Sorry, new queen. Stunningly beautiful. Oh, you idiots, you idiots. You're, just, you're obsessed with appearances, aren't you? Yes, that's what this culture is. The Persian Empire is obsessed just with appearances. Anyway, eventually, verse 5, we meet our heroes. And uh, now we're moving on. And uh, these are going to be the significant players in the story. Mordecai and his kind of niece, Hadassah, her Jewish name, or Esther, her Persian name. And we're given both because I think here's a crucial departure or um, point in the story Which name will define Esther? Will it be Hadassah, her Hebrew name, her Jewish name, or will it be Esther, her Persian name? 
See, she's got two names because she lives in two worlds. She's one of God's people, but she's involved in the empire. Now, which one will define her? Which way will she go? That's what we're given, though, both these names at this point in the story. Well, Mordecai and Esther, they've been brought up in Susa all their lives. They've never been to Jerusalem. Exiles, all they know. So how are they going to live? What will define them? Well, sadly, I think in chapter 2, they bog it. They get it wrong. They drop the ball. So a couple of times we're told, uh, chapter 2, verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Chapter 2, verse 20, Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do. So twice we're told, don't, don't let anyone know that you're Jewish. Don't let anyone know you're, you're part of God's people, Yahweh's people. Don't let them know that. Why not? Why not, Mordecai? Why not, Esther? Well, I don't want to rock the boat, I guess. And in contrast to Vashti, Esther is utterly compliant. She just does whatever she's told. So uh, chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, uh, the king's order comes and um, they're told, yes, off you go. And she just fits in with the culture. Uh, verse 12, she goes in to have her 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed. I mean, 12 months? I mean, I think I could win a beauty contest after 12 months of treatment. That's a, I mean, that's a long time. Uh, anyway, they have, she has all her beauty treatment. Um, verse 15 She's so biddable, she fits in so well. End of verse 15, Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her, including eventually, verse 17, the king. The king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So there's Esther. Well done. You've entered the competition, Esther, and you've won star prize. You win a rocky relationship, probably, with the king. You become queen. Congratulations, Esther. Apart from, she's just capitulated to the culture. Where, where is her identity as one of God's people? She is Esther. And her other name, it's gone. Because she's just blended in. She's just been assimilated. She's just been utterly compliant so she's one, yeah, well, kind of, but at what cost? She's lost what makes her one of God's people, so it seems, at this point in time. So what's she done? Well, she's eaten pagan foods. And think of the contrast the Bible gives us so we get this point. Daniel. Daniel, uh, slightly earlier, in the court of the Babylonians. Daniel, eat this food. No, I can't eat that. I'm, I, I'm one of God's people. I can't eat your pagan food. Or what about Joseph. Um, Joseph, centuries, centuries earlier. Um, Joseph, will you sleep with this, you know, Joseph tempted to sleep with the pagan woman? No, says Joseph, I won't do that. Esther does. So she eats the pagan food. She sleeps with the pagan man that she's not meant to do. And she even marries him. Which, uh, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, the, uh, the Jews who are surviving back there, they're, they're saying the most important thing is you can do is never marry someone who isn't a Jew. Sort of she's just vacillating. She's given in. She's just given up on what makes her one of God's people. So at this stage, it's not great. Esther is not a model for us here because she's just a compromiser. She gives way. So chapters one and two, Esther is not 
the model to follow. Now, of course, some will say, well, all well and good, all well and good. Our lives are nothing like that. I mean, this is, just, this is so distant from us. This is so bonk. You know, what are you talking about? It's so distant. We're nothing like that. Well, really, uh, imagine a conversation with Esther. You happen to meet her in heaven. Um, and a conversation went a bit like this. Oh, Esther, poor you. Poor you. Living in a time when, when men got drunk and went leching after women. I mean, that must have been appalling. Imagine, Esther, living when you did in a time when a woman is judged by her appearance and is under huge pressure to look beautiful. Gosh, Esther, it must have been horrible living all the way back then. Esther, imagine living in a time when when, uh, there was extravagant living to pursue selfish desires. Esther, it must have been abhorrent back then in your primitive culture. And presumably she'd just say, Are you for real? Are you so unaware of the culture you live in? Is it that different? I don't think so. I don't think it's that that different. It may not be a king, but the pressure to live this way, to live according to appearance and to be judged on that, that men, this sort of behavior is tolerated, that actually the, the man with the biggest wallet gets to do what he wants. I mean, I don't, I don't think we're a million miles away from that. I think it's still quite pertinent. Again, the question is, for us, are we going to be um, determined, shaped by the values of the culture? Or will we be distinctive? Will we just give in? And say, that's fine, that's fine. We'll just run with the culture and just be determined purely by how uh, beautiful our form is if we're a woman. How uh, lavish and extravagant we can be with our money if we're a man. Are we going to bow in to that sort of culture? Or be distinctive. Of course, perhaps a legitimate uh, observation some others might make is, um, come on, poor Esther, she had no choice. She had no choice here. I mean, you know, she's taken captive and forced into this competition. There's always a choice. And that sort of might, there's no choice. There's no choice. I mean, that's still what people say today. You don't understand in my workplace. I can't let anyone know I'm a Christian. You don't understand in my workplace, I have to compromise ethically. I have to. Now, that is what the culture, the dominant culture, always says. Now, run with me for two minutes. The, um, uh, someone else gave me this, Star Trek. Um, now, so I'm told, one of the baddies in Star Trek is the Borg. Now, I know, I'm, I'm off my territory here. I, don't, I know nothing about this. But the Borg. So this is the, the sort of the darkest enemy that whoever they are, starship fleet, meet. Um, and uh, so uh, Jean-Luc Picard and his men, they meet the Borg. But the thing the Borg says over and over and over again is, we are the Borg, we will assimilate you, resistance is futile. And that's their saying over and over again, we are the Borg, we will assimilate you, resistance is futile. And they just keep saying it, keep saying it. And what's the point in saying that? Eventually you believe it. We will assimilate you, there's no point resisting. And culturally, that's what we hear. Not consciously. No one's whispering that in our ears. But subconsciously, you just say, oh, you know, you got to, you, there's no choice. You've got to run with it. You've got to do it this way. There's absolutely no choice here. No. Esther could have done things differently. Yeah, but if she hadn't done all that she did, she wouldn't have been queen and couldn't have saved the Jews later on in the book. Yes, I know that. But what if she'd stood up as a Jew early on? And then the, the, the plot would never have happened, possibly. 
if her king knew where she was from, oh no, I like you and I like your people. Don't mm, shut up, Haman. You're not going to, you know, and the thing wouldn't even get up and running. There's always a choice. Don't be intimidated by the culture. It seems so irresistible. It seems that resistance is futile sometimes. It's not. And the reason is because of the second point. Because God is at work. So second thing, don't be distressed with God's hiddenness. Don't be distressed with God's hiddenness. Now, I alluded to this at the beginning. God's name doesn't appear in Esther. Not once. Nothing. No praying, no mention of worship. All religious language is just completely wiped out. It's deliberately not there in the book of Esther. The author has gone out of his way. He's bent over backwards to avoid using God. Now, why is that? Why would, why would you write a book like that? Well, just life's like that, isn't it? It often feels that, well, where's, where's God in this? How can he let this happen? What's he doing? Actually, Esther is one of the easiest books in the Bible to empathize with. Because you, don't, you can't quite work out what God's doing. But Esther teaches us that even in the darkest days, even when things are going wrong, God is still active. He's always active, intimately, proactively involved in his world. Or as one, um, one of the commentators memorably puts it, his silence is not his absence. God's silence is not his absence. Even though you look around, you know, where is God in this? I, you know, you're, you're, what are you doing, Lord? I, can't, I have no idea how this can be good. I have no idea how you can allow this to happen to me, allow this to happen to our nation, allow that to happen to that country over there. But God's silence is not his absence. And Esther shouts that by not mentioning it, if I could put it that way. For example, and that's why we look at it here, why, why are chapters 1 and 2 here in this book? The, the whole of the book of Esther is about an attempt by Haman, the baddie. He's, he, we'll see this in a couple of weeks' time. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, it's always what he's called. It's his attempt to wipe them out. And that begins in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 6, it all kicks off, and he wants to uh, kill all these people. Why are chapters 1 and 2 here? Because there's nothing about, there's nothing about the plot. Because in chapters 1 and 2, God puts Esther and Mordecai where he needs them to be. That's why... It's here. It's just showing God was always planning things this way. So by the end of chapter 2, Esther is queen of the empire and has the king's ear. By the end of chapter 2, Mordecai, if you remember that uh, right at the end of the reading, he's uncovered a plot to uh, kill the king and he's thwarted it. Now nothing happens here. Again, if you're Mordecai, you think, I've just saved the king's life. Bit of money? Promotion? You know... I've been, I've been sensational here. I've done, you know, this is magic. Nothing? Why? Why nothing now? Because, chapter 6, when the king rereads what Mordecai has done, at that moment, that's when the king needs to be pro-Mordecai and save the whole Jewish people in Persia. God always planned it that way. So by the end of chapter 2, uh, Esther's the queen, and um, uh, Mordecai, well, the king owes him one. And that had to be in place. So this is um, normal life, I think. God doesn't appear on the scene. 
It's very different, isn't it, from, say, the book of Exodus, which is fun to read, perhaps, but life isn't like that anymore. There aren't plagues coming down. God isn't burning bushes and speaking from them. He's not um, parting Red Seas and having people uh, march across. He's not sending clouds of pillar around the country. He's not doing that anymore. You know, you see those things, you think, wow, that's, you know, that's God at work, isn't it? Look at that, that's really impressive. But here in Esther, we're meant to see this and think, a king gets drunk, And a queen has a strop, that's God at work. That's God at work. Now, it's not very impressive, is it? It doesn't seem it. But that's God at work. God's silence is not his absence. He's still active, overruling, planning, supervising everything to fulfill his plan. Of course, you can read this and think, well, how would we know? How would we know that a king getting drunk, a queen throwing a strop, we'd never know that that um, that was God's plan? No, you wouldn't. And that's the point. Because in your life and mine, we don't know. God is doing things with us all the time. To what end? We don't know. I was at a wedding last weekend and uh, got chatting to a lovely chap, Christian guy, who um, uh, at a very young age, 30, uh, 36, or just, um, yeah, 36, he'd been made a colonel in the British Army. Now, you know, I have a few friends still in the army, and that's, that's wildly impressive at that age. You know, that he's done really, really well. Uh, very young. So I said to him, gosh, you know, look, you, you, must be, you, know, you must be very able and good at what you do. You know, you're the pick of your generation, clearly. But how, how did that happen? You know, they just, you just bump into the right people at the right time. I mean, how, how did you get there? And he just said, well, you know, I never would have planned it the way it happened. It was just God wanted me to be there. <laughs> he said, a number of times I wanted that job. That was the strategic job. And I got sent over here to the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, oh, gosh. Someone moved away, and I got jumped up a couple of rungs up the ladder. He said, and I bumped into so-and-so who was on my you know, um, board to supervise my promotion, and I met his daughter. He said, yeah, it just all happened, all happened, all happened. He said, none of those events was spectacular. None of them was impressive. But that's how I managed to make, you know, get promoted to such a high rank at such a young age. Just, you know, never would have planned it that way. But I, you know, he was a Christian, so he said, you know, God had his hand, and that was the way he wanted it to happen. Yeah, yeah. God's silence is not his absence. He's still, that's God at work. That's what's going on in that chap's life. That's what's going on in your life and mine. We may not see it. We might want a plague. Well, no, we don't want a plague. We might want a pillar of fire to show us where to go, but it doesn't work like that. It's more often like this, isn't it? But God is active. So there it is, uh, Esther 1 and 2. Uh, just keep trusting in Jesus Christ and his kingdom, not that of the dominant culture. Don't be impressed with appearances. Don't be distressed by God's hiddenness. Just keep trusting in King Jesus. Or if you've never done that, start. Read Esther and smile that um, the culture, it appears so invincible. It appears that you have no opportunity to resist its sort of squeezing you into its mold. And just smile at that and say, well, that's not the case, is it? I can't see God at work, but he is at work. So I don't need to do that. And remember, he's a better king. Let me finish on this. You know, don't, don't be impressed with King Xerxes or the King Xerxes in our world, in our lives, if I can put it like that. But be impressed with King Jesus Christ. Because in some ways they're, they're, some ways they're similar. They're both absolute kings. But Xerxes rules for himself. When Jesus Christ issues laws, they're for our good. They're for our benefit. One of them rules selfishly. 
One of them dies sacrificially. One of them says to his bride, come so I can parade you naked in front of my guests and we can all laugh at you. Uh, The other says in Revelation chapter 19 to his bride, the church, come. Come. And let me lavish grace upon you. Come. And enjoy eternity with me that I've died to bring you. See, when King Jesus says, come, when he summons you, that's a glorious thing. And look, to fail to follow him, to fail to come to him, that's not brave, that's not impressive, that's, that's foolish. Because the reign that he will give you, the king that he is, is one who died for you, who lives for you. He's a servant king who will lavish grace upon you. So to decline him, well, that's a foolish thing to do. So live for him, not for Xerxes and his culture. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you give us these uh, vivid stories to teach us perhaps truths that we know in our heart. We ask again that you would help us to put aside the appearances, perhaps, of this world, that we wouldn't be impressed by the dominant culture, but we would trust in your hiddenness. We wouldn't be distressed by that, but we would know that your silence is not your absence. And knowing that to be true, we would live to serve you. Amen.